Welcome to Fully Yours, a podcast about food, the sacred, and ordinary moments of extraordinary belonging. Hey, this is Christy. And this is Eva. We're sad to say that Chloe couldn't be with us this week, um, but nonetheless, we are three friends um, from graduate school who fell in love with food and its intersections with theology, sustainability, and its power in building community. And we're so glad that you've joined us today. Yeah, definitely. And today we're joined at the table with Kendall Vanderslice, who's a wonderful friend we met while our paths crossed at Simple Church, which we've talked a lot about here on this podcast, but it's a farm-to-table dinner church in Massachusetts. Kendall is just, I can't say it enough, she's an incredible chef, and she taught me a lot about using salt. <laughs> I was I was always too nervous about over-salting things, and she was like, no, just throw it in. Um, but Kendall... I'm so glad that's my legacy. <laughs> She's salty. Yes. Uh, But Kendall is an incredible chef um, who has taught me a lot and who has also worked with a woman-owned bakery, Sofra, in Boston, as well as she was the head pastry chef at a Greek pop-up restaurant in downtown Boston. She is also the author of an incredible book that drops today, May 14th. Her book, We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God, is a beautiful mosaic of several faith communities that meet around the table. And we just, we can't wait to dive into a conversation with you, Kendall. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you guys today. Thank you. Kendall, we are beyond excited for you. Um, And we've gotten to witness a little bit of your journey um, from Simple Church to now as a published author. Um, And we know that your current work is just a small piece, but and also just the catalyst for an entire field of study that you've been dedicated to for years now. Um, So we would love to hear first just about how you fell in love with the food and faith movement um, and how you talk about this a little bit um, in your book. Um, And you mentioned this in your writing, but when did you first realize that this intersection um, was a natural one for you in the life of the church? Just however you want to. Yeah. Yeah. So I I have always loved food and I always wanted to work um, as a baker ever since I was um, in elementary school, really. I loved baking. Uh, It's kind of how I spent all my afternoons, all my free time. It's how I worked through every range of emotions. Um, And once I graduated high school, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life and realized that all I wanted to do was work in the kitchen. Um, But rather than go to culinary school, I went uh, to a small liberal arts school outside of Chicago and studied anthropology, which is uh, not exactly the most natural progression for wanting to work in in restaurants. Um, But while I was there, I started, um, I... I was studying anthropology. I was fascinated by the study of humans and culture. And um, over time in my program there, we um, got a couple of new faculty members who had experience in studying anthropology of food. And they just opened my eyes to a whole new world of, um, of food and a whole new way to approach food and a whole new set of questions to ask about food. 
And as I started thinking about food and its relationship to culture and in its relationship to just humanity and how we eat and um, all of these new questions arose in reading scripture about what is the role of food in this story of the gospel? What's the role of food in the story of creation? What's the role of food in the story of Jesus's ministry? And, um, and what is the role of food in the Eucharist? Why is it that Christ gave us a meal? So that really sparked a lot of these questions of food and faith for me. Um, so that really began my last semester of undergrad and the questions just kept unfolding from there. Um, from there, I went on to do a program in food studies where I started really probing a lot more at these anthropology of food questions. Um, and while I was there, I started connecting with folks who were doing dinner churches and um, folks in the School of Theology, uh, like you guys, who were <laughs> interested in food and faith as well. And the journey just kind of unfolded from there. Yeah. Yeah, we... Uh, we were so blessed to have you at School of Theology. I remember sitting down with you at the cafeteria and you had this long, <laughs> you were working on some sort of uh, Excel spreadsheet. And I was like, mm, I think you would probably want to be doing something else, <laughs> like being in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, man. Was that my spreadsheet of dinner churches? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Oh, man. Yeah, it's so funny. I had I had a very intense spreadsheet of dinner churches back when I thought that this was um, a thing that could be easily tracked. <laughs> mm. And then it hit about 50 churches and I realized that there was no tracking this thing that was going on and um, I yeah. had to reorient. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, this is definitely we're catching the wave right now. Um, mm -hmm. That is for sure. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that um, that scripture played a large part in in seeing how food interacted with faith communities. And and as we look into the Bible for these examples of the table sort of being a place of reconciliation, of grace, of of love. I mean, we recognize the power of those sacred texts and moments to really transcend their historical setting and inform our practices today. Um, and. Mm -hmm. In this particular season of Fully Yours, we're framing our conversations around the concept of time. And as we do so, I can't help but wonder, um, as you were writing your book, how did memory and tradition play into your understanding of the communities that you encountered? Like, how did, how did time, either the lack or abundance of, affect your experiences within each community? Hmm. Well... One way that time came in, and especially the idea of of, um, of memory came in, not so much throughout the process of researching, but really the process of writing this book, was being reminded again and again of various ways that food and church communities uh, wove together throughout my life, um, of church communities that ate together in ways that really transformed me that I didn't necessarily remember until I was writing about all of these other churches and, and these stories came flooding back and um, these memories of, of faith communities that had formed me in ways that I hadn't even realized until I was writing about them and kind of writing my way into this new memory of, of what those communities have meant to me. Mm. Um, but I think also in, in the churches that I visited and that I researched, um, 
there's just such a different sense of time when your worship service takes place around the table. Mm. There's, um, you know, the, the focus is not on the time that each liturgical element takes and not on getting in and getting out in an hour, but the focus is on sitting and enjoying this meal together. And there's an expectation that a meal will take a long time and that a meal will happen slowly and that conversation will unfold slowly. Um, And I think because there's not pressure to get things done in a short amount of time, there's also not the same amount of pressure to fill that time. Um, So whereas our traditional Sunday services don't typically, typically they're focused on filling the time and don't leave a lot of space for silence, I think. Mm, Yes, um, so true really allowing ourselves to not be bound by time and allow silence to participate in this process of worship with us and lead us through these uncomfortable moments um, into this process of worship was really profound for me. Mm. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I I really hear a theme of um, just like presence beyond like Mm. flexibility, but... um, and that was often my experience with simple church was it it just really it really shifts the relationship of the people who are gathered there and i think their relationship to what worship even means um yeah so thank you mm-hmm. for for sharing that i think also in relationship to time and presence like for you just we were talking about this a little bit earlier but as you were writing this book and balancing being a student um, and just being a human and taking care of yourself and your strudel, um, <laughs> how did you do that? And like, I don't, obviously there's no one right answer, but. Um, I don't know. The yeah. answer is I don't know. No, I mean, I think that um, really in part the answer is that I have always been quite a poor steward of my own time. Um, I I am one who wants to fill every second and who is very uncomfortable Mm. with slowness and stillness. Um, And that's something that I really had to wrestle with in um, the year that I worked for Simple Church um, and Mm. that I find myself wrestling with again as I'm entering into this new season, um, being done with school once again, of... um, of longing for rest and longing for slowing down and yet when I have it not knowing what to do with myself in it Um, Mm -hmm. and being faced with that almost that discomfort of slowness and that discomfort of having an abundance of time and being okay with not filling it Um, so Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know if I could say that there was balance in (laughs) trying to write this book and be in school I had the most just the the most, um, the moment where I realized that I did not have it all in balance happened about a month and a half ago. I was on um, a business call and I was supposed to be finishing up um, re- responding to some emails about publicity related things. And it was one o'clock in the afternoon and I was still in my pajamas because I hadn't gotten off the couch. Um, and Strudel, my dog, escaped because I hadn't taken him on a walk yet. And so he wanted to take himself on a walk. Um, and so I was 
running down the street in my pajamas on this business call, trying not to let the person on the other end of the line know what I was doing. <laughs> and trying to find my dog without yelling his name. <laughs> Just feeling like, oh my goodness, I clearly am trying to do too much right now and I can't handle it. Um, so oh, that's so real. That's, that's so real. <laughs> that's about how balance goes for me. <laughs> yeah, what is work-life balance anyway, right? Uh, all just doing it. We're all just trying. <laughs> yes. Yes. And of course, I mean, you're a very talented chef. You're a salty chef. <laughs> Thank you. In the best way possible. <laughs> and in your book, you wrote about this incredible menu that you shared with three complete strangers. Um, so you talk about a warm fennel salad and uh with grapefruit and asparagus risotto which it's asparagus season and i'm so excited um (laughs) crusty sourdough bread gooey brie and a chocolate tahini cake um you you shared this meal in the hopes of learning how food truly brings people together so um you know reflecting on that what has been your overall experience with bonding moments at the table as well as the time it takes to form those relationships because sometimes I feel like oh we cook this beautiful meal and magic poof we should be best friends but it doesn't always Mm -hmm. happen that way um can you Mm -hmm. just reflect on that a little bit yeah so with that project this was sort of um Uh, an experiment that I designed in my first year of grad school in this food studies program. And I was really wanting to press at this kind of um, romantic ideal of what happens around the table, because uh, it's really easy to romanticize the way that the table forms friendships and um, solidifies relationships. And I knew that that was not always true. Um, but I also knew that sometimes it was true and I really wanted to kind of prod at what, what happens around the table and how do relationships shift around the table and how do we make sense of the discomfort that we feel around the table? Um, and so I got, uh, a group of four women to commit to a series of four meals. So these, these women did not know one another. Um, and I got them to commit to a series of four meals, uh, that we shared, over the course of four weeks, um, and I had them all kind of journal through the process what it felt like to form relationships around the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the things that we found, first off, it is very uncomfortable to start. The first week was incredibly awkward. And we sat around the table. Um, this first meal is is the meal that you just described, the fennel salad and the risotto and the, the cake and the, the bread, and we had wine. Um, and we were sitting in my dining room that was very formal, um, and it was so awkward. And we sat in silence for a long time, a long part of the meal, because no one knew quite what to say. And part of it was awkwardness because they knew that this was research. It wasn't just a normal meal. And part of it was awkwardness because nobody knew one another. And the food alone was not enough to um, spark those relationships. Hmm. But what we also realized over time um, was that a large, a large part of what allowed relationships to form was this commitment to getting to know one another, a communal commitment to we're going to sit through this discomfort and awkwardness 
to see what happens. And we are going to commit to asking questions and hearing one another's stories and learning these pieces around one another to see how a relationship might form and what that might look like. Um, And after four weeks, we'd had moments where we had felt really close and really bonded and where we had laughed some really deep belly laughter, um, where we had shared some really beautiful and intimate and powerful stories. Um, And then we still had moments that were very awkward, where we didn't quite know what to say with one another. Um, And we, we learned that, you know, space plays a part of it, the food itself plays a part of it, the table plays a part of it, but then also just our commitment to work through that discomfort and awkwardness and to spend time in order to get to that place of, of relationship. Um, and the table created a safe space to do that and a safe space to hold this tension of forming new relationships. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that holding the tension image. And I think you make such a great point about how, and I like catch myself doing this all the time, like the romanticization of meals and like, you know, it's this time where it's just great and people are connecting and bonding. And like, I can think of plenty of very fraught family dinners like where things were not right um people joke about thanksgiving for a reason the table's not always comfortable totally totally um like i remember after the 2016 election it was like there was so much conversation about like what's the what's the thanksgiving dinner table going to be like um right um kind of getting back to the actual cooking of meals i'm wondering if this um I don't know, I guess how you wrestle with, like, this romanticization in your own life. Like, is cooking something that feels restorative to you? Is it something that you might describe as, like, a love language? Um, And or is it, does it feel like labor, I guess, when, Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, like I know for, for pastors, I know, like, adding one more sort of pastoral element when they're not in their sort of work mode is can be really draining um so yeah I'm just curious about like what role did cooking play in your own life as you were working on this project yeah um it's funny I have a tense relationship with cooking actually and cooking in my own home um I do love it when I have the time for it and it does feel deeply restorative when I'm cooking for other people Mm. um and then at the same time when I um, I live alone and cooking for one can be an incredibly lonely process mm. um, and it can amplify um, the the reality of that loneliness um, but also when I was working in restaurants cooking for myself at home or just cooking at home at all was incredibly exhausting because it was this thing that I had done all day for work and I mm. didn't have the capacity for it as pleasure mm. um, and so it's sort of a funny tense relationship with where where I've had seasons where I do not want to cook in my own home um, and then seasons where I need to cook in my own home just for my own sanity Mm. Um, but I I think that really when it comes to seeing it as sort of a a pastoral um, thing we can't just see it as something to add on top of all of the other things that we're doing. Mm. 
Mm. Um, But instead to ask, how does this call to feed others and this call to feast with others, how does that challenge the overall structure of my week or of my work or of my life? Um, we, we can't just say people need to add in an extra hour a day to cook. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just need to slow down our cooking and, and forget about fast food because the reality is most people really don't have the capacity for that. And that's something that could just push them over the edge. And, um, really, I think instead thinking, starting at food is inherently a gift from God and delighting in this process of eating together is a way that we commune with God. And if we mm. start there, we can ask, how does this reflect back on the rest of my life? Where are the areas where this does not feel true? Um, and where are the ways that I have set up my life in such a way that this can't be true? And how can that, how can I then address those tensions? Um, and one of the things that that's looked like for me right now in this season is having a group of about five friends and we rotate between one another's homes three nights a week to eat meals together because mm. while we're in school, we just can't cook for ourselves and provide for ourselves. And we've realized that it is um, that it is emotionally draining to eat alone. And so our commitment has been we each cook one night a week and then we rotate between one another's homes and have others others provide for us the rest of the nights of the week. And that. so, yeah, that's been a deeply restorative, um, a deeply restorative process and actually something that's quite simple. You know, half an hour to cook a meal for six people um, is not that much, especially when it means you don't have to cook the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. it just takes, it takes slightly rethinking time and slightly rethinking community and how you function together. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. There's a very much um, give and take feel to that. And it's more um, give and receive as opposed to give Mm -hmm. and and take. And that, I mean, it's a gift to give, but it's also a gift to receive and to receive Mm -hmm. that in humility and and just, wow, I love that. Um, I too am single cooking for myself um, and it's, it's hard it's really, really hard because you're like, man, I would love to share this meal with someone. Um, so I may yeah. actually form a community <laughs> and <laughs> rotate around. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And it's beautiful too. The, um, there are two of us in the group are single and then four are married. Mm-hmm. And it's been beautiful as we've, as we've shared in this process, or I'm sorry, two are married, two are engaged, and then two of us are single. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we've shared in this process, it's been really moving to learn more about the ways that we each experience loneliness mm-hmm. in our mm-hmm. phases of life. And, and being able to really articulate that together um, has just been profoundly important for myself, but I think for others as well as we've navigated um, navigated this this past year. Yeah. That's so real. I'm sorry. I just like want to interject something that just reminds me of something I've been like reading and learning a lot about and trying to figure out sort of how to put it in practice. But um, I have a good friend who does asset based community development for a living, which is really just a fancy way of saying like he works on what it means to like get to know your neighbors, like your physical Mm -hmm. neighbors and So they've done a lot of, or they've used a lot of research about, like, this idea of loneliness and that, um, 
I don't know exactly how this works out, but basically the the emotional and mental effects can be as damaging as like smoking mm. two oh, or wow. three packs of cigarettes a day or something. And um, yeah, and just the that paradox of like living in such a globally connected world, but we're we're more isolated and alienated from each other than ever. Um, mm-hmm. And I think food can play such a powerful and really simple role like I don't think it always has to be a fancy banquet you know that we're inviting people to but just just breaking bread in whatever ways that looks like so yeah I just think that's Mm -hmm. amazing that you're that you're doing that Mm, thank you I'm actually writing down notes of what you just said because (laughs) um yeah, I think the loneliness factor is very real and something that doesn't get talked about enough yeah. and the, the very real harm that plays. and um, Totally. Yeah. Yeah, you, had a, you have a chapter in your book that um, I read the first page of that chapter to my mom and she was like, mm. oh, it breaks <laughs> my heart. Um, mm. Kendall talks about uh, leaving church and, and feeling like, okay, I'm a single woman and I'm, you know, I see a lot of family units surrounding me mm-hmm. who are about to go off to lunch. And uh, and it's very strange to walk back to your car by yourself because, I mean, that's what I'm doing. That's mm-hmm. what I'm doing in Massachusetts. I'm single and I, my family lives in a different state. So it's, it's, it's so real. It's so real. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. so real. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very thankful that you're talking about that. So um, very much. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, I think that that loneliness is, is so pervasive and there's a stigma around talking about it because we don't want to be needy. We don't want to come across as needy to our friends and so we don't articulate our needs. And when we don't articulate our needs, others don't realize they exist and Mm -hmm. don't don't know ways to address them. And so I'm hoping that in writing about it in this book um, and just talking about it, that it sparks conversation a bit more about the reality of this loneliness and then also sparks creative ideas about how we can address it communally. Totally. So um, clearly you're you're breaking down a lot of boundaries of like things that we don't normally talk about. One of the things that I also really appreciate about your book is that you say, you know, we we romanticize the table. And I think <laughs> I think we're kind of guilty at fully yours of doing that. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that you're bringing that up because it is something that we need to examine. And um, just a lot, I mean, from loneliness to a lot of other beautiful things, you're, you're breaking down barriers. And we're really, really excited for for the field that you're opening up. And, and so I guess we're, we're curious about what you see is, is next on the horizon for you and for this food and faith movement in general. And really, how can folks get involved? For me, I see my next steps as twofold. Um, first, really digging deeper into the community that I exist in already um, through food by baking. Um, I am, I've been running a bread share at my school for the last semester, um, where folks sign up once and get a loaf a week for 10 weeks. Um, and that has been a powerful way of creating community within my school, um, of, um, just those who, those who take part in the bread share who kind of connect with one another over the bread that they get every week um, and have become 
a beautiful community for me of people who really um, articulate a lot about what the bread means to them, which is something that you don't get as much when you work Mm -hmm. in a traditional bakery or restaurant setting. You don't actually get to serve what you've made to people week after week after week and see their expressions. Um, But it's also been powerful because most, a lot of folks can't necessarily eat their bread every week. Um, They'll be out of town a week or, you know, they just aren't able to finish it a week. And so it's become this really beautiful thing that gets shared around the Divinity School that that everyone in the school knows about the bread and everyone knows what day is bread day because it gets (laughs) passed out in class. And um, it's just created this really beautiful community of people saying, oh my goodness, I went to so-and-so's house last night and I got to try your bread. And um, just a really beautiful community forming thing in my school um, and I am extending it out uh, to the larger city in the next year and so um, for me I see that as a really powerful way of being able to feed the community that I'm in now both physically and spiritually Um, but then I also see a broader um, this broader feeding through words for me it's as a writer and um, a writer and journalist and both writing, you know, essays on these themes of food and faith that get us to reflect around how food functions in our communities, um, and then also more journalistic stories to help people understand what's already going on, what people are already doing in this intersection of food and faith, and um, what the church is uniquely equipped to do to address issues of food insecurity and food injustice and um, various things. So, those are sort of the, the next steps for me, um, feeding through bread and feeding through words. I want some of that bread. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I wish that bread shipped better because, man, I could really make a living off of it if I could ship it. With all the people who have told me, like, can you mail it to me? <laughs> I have a couple of readers in France who've asked me if I could mail them wow. bread and it's wow. so funny. I'm like, you guys have way better bread available right there in your own backyard. You don't want mine. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, well, we're sort of drawing to a close, um, but we like to ask guests on the pod, um, what is a particular meal or a food memory that stands out to you? And it could be... Um, related to this period of time where you've been working on your book or, um, or, or before then really just a a memorable meal for you. I mean, I think the memories that are flooding back right now are the times that the four of us spent together Mm. in the kitchen at simple church, making Mm. soup and shaping bread. Um, Mm. and adding more salt and adding more salt, (laughs) always more salt. (laughs) Um, but of, of making soup and salad and bread together to then, to then feed others, um, Mm. that that was just a really unique and special time, um, of re, recasting a vision of what it means to cook for a living Mm. and to, Mm. um, to feed others outside of the restaurant context. Mm. Yeah. And I know that your sourdough starter and sourdough recipe is like carried on. I mean, I, um, I learned how to bake bread from my dad when I was in high school, but really didn't do a lot of it. I did a little bit in college and then a little bit after, but not much again until I got involved in simple church. And, um, I've just loved like returning to, 
returning to that. It's not something I do regularly, but when I do, it's just, it feels very connecting and, um, yeah. And I got to do a little workshop on spirituality and bread baking with some college students I work with a few weeks ago. And it was just, um, it was just so cool to see like this very simple act of kind of kneading together flour and water and yeast, um, it's just such a yeah. connecting thing. So thank you oh, for like, I feel like I you've been a big that. part of that legacy. And Oh, yay. I love that so much. I love that that has, that that's carrying on and expen- extending out to other communities. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kendall, thank you so much for your incredible work. And thank you so much for joining us at the table. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, For more information about Kendall's new book, We Will Feast, be sure to check out her website at www.kendallvanderslice.com or wherever books are sold. We'll include a link in our show notes. And thank you so much to our listeners for joining us around the table. We'll see you in two weeks. Until next time, we're fully yours. Thank you so much for joining us at the table. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think by leaving a rating on iTunes, or if you have show ideas, comments, or just want to reach us directly, send us an email at fully.yours.podcast at gmail.com. For today's show notes, our blog, and more, be sure to check us out at fullyyourspodcast.com. Huge thanks to Steve Dry and Catalyst of Harvard Epworth United Methodist Church, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for their generous grant funding of this podcast. Shout out to the talented Joel Adams and Melody Stanford Martin for producing the original song featured in this podcast. Also to Melody for our gorgeous logo design and to our dream team for keeping us grounded and inspired. Until next time, we are fully yours.